Yeah. Uh, welcome to the uh, Sporting Mavericks podcast, which I have tentatively titled Prince Pirate Peach, after some nicknames of people we'll uh, we'll talk about in later episodes. So, I'm Philip Malcolm. I write about sports. And I'm Paul Keegan, and I write about phonics. What a combination. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Because, because I always think there just aren't enough podcasts in the world, particularly yeah. not by middle class white guys. I think. Yeah, yeah. The world, the world. Do, you know, yeah. Do you know a friend of mine um, about seven or eight years ago came up with the term podcast as a collective noun for middle middle aged middle class white men? Ah, that's like uh, like top man indie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Uh, <laughs> so, in that spirit, as we discussed before we uh, before we decided to record this, uh, we, we we wanted to do a segment where two uh, two middle aged middle class white guys complain about shit for three minutes. So, yeah. Paul, what's grinding your gears? <laughs> what's grinding my gears? Okay, so I think jet lag is a wonderful thing, and. About four o'clock this morning, I was remembering some magnificent hot dogs that I'd eaten. Uh, (laughs) The day before yesterday at um, Jim's Texas Hots. This is not a plug on uh, Market Street in Corning, (laughs) New York. I'm going to give you some free hot dogs as a result. Seriously. By some some miracle they hear this and want to shoot me a few free hot dogs, please do. Jim, if you are in fact still with us. Um, now, Jim's place is it's the kind of place you know when you go in there and you think this place hasn't changed since like 1975. It's yeah. still got like an oldie worldy New York Yankees sign on the wall. Um, the deco hasn't changed since the 70s. Yeah, oh, yeah. The deco hasn't, deco hasn't changed since the 70s. And um, I was eating this there. I was eating these two, you know, New York classic hot dogs. Sauerkraut, mustard, strawberry milkshake. It's something I do every single time I come to visit my wife's family in Corning, New York. And um, and I found myself thinking about the sort of five or six hot dogs past <laughs> that, that I've had. <laughs> and I was just looking back through the photos of these hot dogs that I'd sent to my friend Richard, who's another hot dog enthusiast. And I was thinking to myself, like, we're kind of moving away from that tradition of, you know, soft white bun, yeah. hot dog. And you're not, you're not like, the artisan so, hot dog. That's it. The artisan hot dog. started to grind me gears. And I started thinking about like the gimmicks, the gimmicks that they're adding to hot dogs nowadays. Like the, you know, they'll call it something like the, the Mayan because it's got, because yeah. it's got avocado on it. And it's like a homemade toasted brioche bun with but house slaw. <laughs> No, that just, I want, I just want grinds me and eyelashes. That's... Yes, that's it. It grinds me gears. Art, artisan hot dogs are grinding me gears. I feel like we're moving away from a world in which a soft white bun with a boiled hot dog, sauerkraut, sauerkraut and mustard is enough. That's, that's what's grinding my gears. What about you? Keegan, a man out of time. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought I'd become anachronistic in my forties? Who'd have thought it felt even more niche than that? Because I was thinking okay. today, like, what's the thing that's caused me the most angst this week? 
and it was legitimately oh, again right back Matisse Sawasa. Okay. So okay. Normally, when I go to football, I speak Dutch to the people I go with. Yeah. Except okay. sometimes when I get pissed off, I slip into proper Northern English dialect vitriol. Okay. And this okay. kid, right? This kid, if he wasn't from the city, he wouldn't be playing for him. Yeah. He oh. definitely wouldn't be first choice. Because the only thing he's got is a decent first touch. I've never seen him beat a man. I've seen him. We got his centre back likes to bring the ball out of defence, and he stands there on the halfway line and waits. And then mm. he loses the ball way up the pitch. He just starts walking back. Oh, that would wind me up. That would wind me up. Yeah, so you so lose yes. a ball. Yeah. So, yes, lose a ball, you'll do anything to get it back. He's twenty-one years old as well. You know. He's ambitious. He wants to be playing in the Premier League in three years, he said. So, not like that you won't, pal. So, yeah. I gave him a piece of my mind yesterday. And two, <laughs> two children turned around absolutely horrified. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Would you like to share what, what piece of your mind, what particular piece of your mind you gave him? Or is this a family-friendly... I may have called him a lazy little prick at high volume. <laughs> Fair enough. Twice. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, so, Sporting Mavericks. Yes. Our first ever episode, Mr. Keegan, is about yes. Marco Pantani. Cue the slides. It's okay. Right. You don't need to cue the slides. I can add the slides later. As long as you've got the slides in front of you, I'll tell I you do have the slides. On. We'll do okay. it in post. So, slide number two is Mr. Marco Pantani. What do you know about Marco Pantani already? Other than a kind of brief conversation I had with my father about a year ago, um, he had some kind of piratical nickname. Was he the pirate? He was the pirate. He's the, the titular he was pirate, the pirate of this podcast, yeah. Yeah. Um, he was a cyclist. Um, you can probably glean that from the picture. Yes. And I, I gleaned that he was not slightly Italian. From his name. <laughs> but, but other than that, I kind of resisted the temptation to learn any more about right. him. I just kind so, of, I want to react. I want to react to this react. story, a story that I don't already know. Right. So for a brief period in the 1990s of about three and a half years, Marco Pantani was like the most exciting guy in cycling. So before Lance Armstrong came along and after Miguel Indurain, who we'll talk about later, this guy was the shit. Like, nobody was like him. He was this little, skinny, tiny, mardy Italian fella who was given to weird metaphysical quotes in interviews. And he, he was the best climber ever. But the story is a little more complicated than that, of course, because, as you might already know, he's dead. He died in 2004 of uh, a cocaine overdose. So, we're going to take you on a roller coaster ride through Marco Pantani's life, but also the Italy that made Marco Pantani. So, there's a really cool uh, Steve Friedman, an American journalist, wrote a, a feature on him shortly after he died and summed him up as uh, a cheater, an innocent victim, sensitive and cruel, loving and arrogant, a villain and a hero. He saved the Tour de France, he brought shame on cycling, he inspired others, he destroyed lives. And that is one hell of a quote. Um, That's a pretty good CV, yeah. 
Yeah, now I, <laughs> uh, I actually I'm having a flashback now, Phil. We've known each other for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, now I remember. Now I didn't put these two together, but because uh, I didn't know he was dead, but I remember a conversation that you and I had. It must have been in the days after he died. That was uh, two Valentine's Day, two thousand four. Not to uh, skip ahead too far. And I remember asking how he died, and you saying to me a cocaine overdose. Yeah. And how we talked about how I don't think I've ever heard of anybody dying from a cocaine overdose. Well, like, we're gonna heroin overdose, you know, etc., etc., etc. We're gonna get to that. This is this is this is a long-term issue. This isn't like <laughs> he woke up one morning, took a load of cocaine, and died. But we're gonna we're cut, right. We're not gonna start start there. That's where we're going to finish. Okay, but, uh, okay. yeah, right. So first of all, I'm just going to I'm just going to tell you where I got all the uh, all the stuff, all the research from this to acknowledge my sources. Uh, a book by a guy called Matt Rendell called "The Death of Marco Pantani," which is like the, uh, the standard text on the subject. Uh, his manager Manuela Ronchi, she wrote a book called "Man on the Run," which is an interesting semi-fictional account of it. The uh, Steve Friedman uh, article I mentioned there. Uh, Pro Cycling Stats, which is a website which is like the archive of professional cycling, which is cool. Uh, John Foote wrote a book called Pedalari Pedalari, which is a history of Italian cycling. And Herbie Sykes, who wrote a book called uh, Magilia Rosa, which is the uh, history of the Giro d'Italia, which we'll, uh, we'll go into first. But uh, I'm going to start with two Italian concepts. So the first one is called, and uh, forgive my Italian, uh, Dietrologia which is the, the idea that behind what we see as a surface reality, uh, like all kinds of dimensions and all kinds of like machinations in the background that we as ordinary citizens can't know about. Yeah. And the one that goes hand in hand with that is the familiar concept of uh, Omerta, which means those who do know about it, don't talk about it. Okay. Um, the, the, the central theme through both of those is this kind of sinister menace of like, there's, there's something going on underneath the surface in everyday life which you can't understand and it was kind of in the end the search for that they kind of destroyed Mr. Pantani but we're going to start our story uh, next slide please in okay. 1945 when uh, Second World War has just ended and Italy is not to put too fine a point on it fucked <laughs> I mean yeah, the image of the slide couldn't have summed it up any better. Oh, you've got some uh, really got some some light infantry from Nottingham walking through the destroyed ruins of a, a Renaissance city. But I'm going to quote from the Herbie Sykes book first of all, which could just set the scene of where we are in Italy in 1945. So, Italy at the end of World War II lay in ruins. Her infrastructure all but obliterated. The will of her people crushed by years of human carnage and ideological bewilderment. In her cities, entire communities found themselves homeless living in railway carriages at useless abandoned stations. In the south, those fortunate enough not to have been bombed completely out of their homes, searched frantically for furniture, doors and windows amidst the wreckage of devastated towns. The country lacked gas, clean water and transportation infrastructure. 60% of Mussolini's famous trains were damaged and no more would run on time. So, yeah, Italy. Uh, yeah, so that's that's like 1945, but we could go back further than that. But this is the time when like it uh, cycling in Italy assumes this almost like religious significance. So oh. you, you know how the Tour de France works. You've got a three-week race. 
uh, the person yeah. with the, the shortest time to complete the three weeks, the, the stages over the three weeks, wins the race. Yeah. So yeah. a few years after the Tour de France started, Italy had its own version, which is the Giro d'Italia, which is not an exclusively Italian affair, but is huge in Italy. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it emerged in the interwar years as, as Italy's biggest sporting event. And but the 40s and 50s would set up this duel between uh, Fausto Coppi, who won the last Giro before the war and then got conscripted, and uh, Gino Batali, who uh, he won he won two three I think before the Second World War, but was too old for service. Uh, so Coppi is a guy who was like modern Italy. Uh, okay. He he divorced his wife like in the early 50s. Uh, he got excommunicated by the Pope. He he was like this flash guy who rode around in cool cars and everything and, and was like the new social forces in Italy. Batali was a devout Catholic, a Tuscan guy off a farm. Uh, and he spent the Second World War, actually, he was still training, but he uh, he was carrying messages between churches about uh, rescuing Jews in his uh, in his bike frame. So this isn't to say he was like a leftist hero or anything, but he was a genuinely a decent guy. So these two yeah. become like the saints of uh, of Italian cycling. Yeah, and, uh, like you've got the, like the the old guard, and then this kind of yeah. rock and roll <laughs> cyclist. Yeah, who who spent the whole the second half of the, the the Second World War, he spent in a British POW camp in Libya. So, 1945, he gets off a boat in Naples. Fausto Coppi, this is. Uh, having sat out the second half of World War II in that POW camp. And uh, history is somewhat unclear on how he obtained the bicycle, Uh, negotiated to borrow a bike and then rode it 850 kilometers back to his house in Genoa is the the kindest interpretation I can find of that. He blagged a bike. Yeah. He's He's like stole a bike. He's like stole a bike. Yeah. Let's face it. He, yeah, let's face, let's it. face it. He yeah. robbed it. Yeah. And I shouldn't. I shouldn't imagine his ride home was a was a barrel of laughs either. But you know. Uh, so yeah, before the before the war, like these two guys, uh, go go to the next slide because you can see a lovely picture of them there, which is like a legendary picture in cycling. Oh. So this is the this is the two of them on uh, somewhere in France. And there used to be a yeah. debate between like who's handing the bottle to who, but there is there's just no debate. Batali's got one on his handlebars and Copy hasn't, so it's Copy handing in the bottle. From Copy's in front there, by the way. That's Fausto and Gino okay, Batali. Yeah. Okay. Now, now this picture to me, um, 1950s. You know, it to me was it really has it, it could only be more 1950s Southern European. With one or both of these men were smoking in this picture. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of half expected one of them to have I a do, cigarette. I do have a picture of Fausto Coppi going out hunting with a shotgun over his arm and uh, a woodbine dangling from his lips, which is uh, it's beautiful. You know, it's beautiful. Just a different cloth, Phil. Yeah. They really were. <laughs> so, like 1946. Uh, the Giro starts up again, right? This is like the, the race for a better tomorrow or something. The Giro of Renewal, it was called. So it's designed to reflect what Italy could be as well as where it was. So mm-hmm. where it was, was a country with shit or no roads and a guerrilla war being fought over Trieste where a, a stage was supposed to finish. 
So, okay. uh, so Tito yeah. wanted it as yeah. part of Yugoslavia, and uh, the Americans were uh, not keen on that. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's like a clash of age, ideology, two of Italy's favourite sons. It's like it's Italy in microcosm. Uh, okay. yeah. Now, just one question. So, I mean, I've heard of the Giro d'Italia. Now, is is this still a thing? Is it still yeah, going yeah, on? Absolutely, yeah, it's every okay. May. Okay. It starts the, the first weekend in May, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is also a society that's deeply divided on political lines after like years of fascism. Communism is a mainstream political ideology in Italy at this time, which was, of course, somewhat repressed under Mussolini. Uh, but also all those fascists who supported the uh, the old regime haven't just suddenly been converted to being nice liberals. Uh, left-wing, left-wing, left-wing politics is also a threat to uh, the supremacy of the Catholic Church, and the, which is where Italy's social code comes from. We already discussed that with Coppi. So this is a rivalry that's like sporting, personal, political, and regional. Uh, the rivalry between the two of them has kind of become blurred over time. It's not really polarized anymore. Coppi died in 1960 when he was still a professional cyclist, uh, having won five Giro d'Italia, two Tour de France, countless everything else. Batali retired in 1954, in fact, having won two Tours and uh, three Giros. So... Oh, so- how old is he when he died? Copy? Yeah. I'm going to have to look that up for you. One, one second. Yeah, I mean, That's all right. You're just exposing me as a hack and a fraud is what you're doing. No, no, no. I mean, you, know, <laughs> you didn't know I was going to ask that question, but I mean, no. still being a professional cyclist up until the point of yeah, your death. 40. I mean, that's 40. Yeah, well, that's, it goes without saying that's pretty rare, but. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was malaria that he contracted on a, a trip to, uh, Somewhere in, he was somewhere in Africa hunting on holiday, he contracted malaria and died. Uh, yeah. So this is golden age of Italian cycling. So the, the last, well, the real uh, competition between the two of them was the 1946 uh, Giro, which Batali actually won. Uh, but this is like really uh, the foundational myth of Italian cycling. If cycling is a religion in Italy, and it, it, it kind of is, these were the two saints. So there were others who would try and take up the mantle, like the Giro remains, kind of an almost parochial affair. It's huge in Italy. It's quite a big race elsewhere, but if you think like 90% of the money in global cycling is in the Tour de France, and the Giro is the second biggest race with 5%. Uh, All right. Yeah. So, 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 so you said right now or traditionally it was almost exclusively Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now it's a bit more international, but it's kind of where you go before you go to the Tour de France. Anyway, continuing yeah. the story. So Italy lacked right. many things at this time, but what it what it did have was a shitload of US Army surplus amphetamines, which are like custom made at the time for the purposes of cheating at professional cycling. It's taking the edge off grueling days, slogging through the Dolomites, giving enough energy to artificially block out the rain and cold and live to fight another day. And the timing of when to take these, uh, they called them bombs. The timing of when to take your bomb became as much of the uh, the cyclist's skill set as knowing when to attack your rivals or knowing where, where a, a tough bend on a descent was. So alongside these products is a cadre of men known as uh, preparatores. 
so these are kind of coaches, kind of pharmacists, kind of gurus, psychologists, like somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, so Copy had this guy called Biagio Cavana, who was blind, in fact, who was like an absolute dictatorial team manager, uh, was also a blind physiotherapist whose influence over his riders was much speculated upon. Uh, but these guys, the concept of the preparatories kind of goes forward and we'll meet some of the kind of modern versions of, with the, the modern drugs as well. Uh, as a final scene setter for the sport of cycling in the post-war era, we'll, uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about how it was consumed by fans. So there were two ways in the old days you could, you could experience cycling. There was the newspaper where you could read about how it happened after the fact, and there was the radio where you could listen to it while it was happening. Now, the thing about both of those is they're not a visual media. There's no moving pictures. The, so journalists tended to exaggerate how, how, how far ahead of their rivals people finished or the, the, how far from the, the finish of the stage they attacked. And this kind of leads to this growth of this fucking awful thing I hate in cycling is the warrior myth idea of epic suffering, oh. uh, which obviously like leads to a demand for more epic suffering so people can, <clears throat> can eclipse the the achievements of, uh, of riders from the past, uh, which obviously, you know, the human body has a limit of potential. Or does it? Uh, right. Yeah, got a load of free speed. I think... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's limit to push a little bit. Yeah. I love the idea. Of... A little bit, a little bit, but we'll, yeah. uh, we'll get there as well. If you want to look at the, uh, the next slide there, which is the, uh, the Treaty of Rome, which uh, was signed in 1958 by a number of European nations with the idea of making sure they never uh, they never starved or had a war ever again. And it, it held up pretty well until 2016. Uh, yeah. So this sparks a minor economic miracle in Italy. And there's a, a lot of uh, internal uh, migration to the north from uh, the poor south, which leads to a lot of new building works, which is all a lot of which is publicly funded which uh, in some places uh, artificially suppresses wages, in some places they increase because they, they have labour that they need and have skill sets that they didn't have before. Uh, but this leads to uh, a kind of a huge explosion in manufacturing in particular, industrial output. So industrial output was growing between 58 and 1963 in Italy at 10% a year, like okay. only surpassed by Japan and West Germany, like in the world, basically. Uh, but you still have this kind of, uh, so yeah, the next slide there is that the fruit of this, this labor is a Fiat 500. Ooh, I, didn't, I didn't say they were good at this. Uh, they made a lot of things, but you know, like Zanussi, Fiat, uh, all of those classic Italian brands that, you know, Lambretta were all making these kind of affordable goods. Uh, yeah. There's something really beautiful about a Fiat 500. There really is. If you've ever if you've ever been in one, there isn't. Uh, <laughs> they look cool. I'll give you that. Must have been in a 500, surely. Surely, at some point. Maybe a new, I can't. Maybe a new one. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, they look like they look like they'd be difficult to sit in the back of on a long trip. Yeah. Next slide, please. So you also still have this conflict between left and right in Italy at the time, which is uh, the 
You see here the bombing of uh, Bologna train station in 1980 by a, a fascist maybe supported by the cia group but there were a lot of bombings and murders of policemen and kidnappings and so from all these weird little uh hardcore communist and quasi-fascist groups which leads to this weird kind of paranoia in uh, in italian uh society about who's funding this is it the soviet union is it the cia and this is that concept i was explaining to you before about me never being sure about what lies behind reality uh so this is this is Italy. So this is a nation that's like, in some aspects, is nearly a failed state. In others, it's like one of the the leading proponents of the the rapid industrialization of post war Europe, and it's it's a, it, it's how you say Paul, it's a land of contrasts. Yes. <laughs> in conclusion, Italy was a land of contrasts. It was a land of contrasts. Next slide. Oh. So this is. This is where Marco Pantani was born. This is uh, Cesenatico on the Adriatic coast of Italy, which at the time experienced a kind of uh, tourist boom as well. So 13th of January, 1970, Marco Pantani is born. Uh, his parents are Paolo, uh, who's a plumber, and uh, Tonina, who uh, cleans hotel rooms in the uh, the new hotels that are springing up all across the, uh, the beaches there. Uh, as a consequence, he's basically raised by his grandfather, uh, Sotero, who's uh, an ardent communist, uh, but takes him hunting and things. So uh, back in... Though, but, uh, these days, you would give this child Ritalin because he's a, he's a hyperactive child who fights with other children all the time. He, he climbs on everything. He's always falling off his little tricycle and so and falling downstairs and things. Uh, he's a nightmare. Uh, they try to get him to like uh, channel his energy into sport, and he really loves playing football. Uh, but I mean, you've seen the guy, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's he's not big enough to play football in Italy in the 1980s. Yeah, I was gonna say Paolo Maldini. He ain't. <laughs> he ain't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a little fella. He's a little he's fella. A little fella. He's you can a little fella, but also he's yeah, he's a very awkward kid as well because he starts losing his hair when he's like 13. Yeah. Waspish, would you say? Uh, yeah, yeah. diminutive winger on uh, football manager, you would say. <laughs> okay, so we set the scene. 1970. Well, I mean, we, we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit back here, but I'm going to try and keep, keep you informed as to what's going on in the world of cycling and what's going on in the world of Italy in the 1970s. So obviously not much happens in anybody's life between the ages of zero and ten. But... Uh, at this time, uh, cycling is dominated by Belgian guy Eddie Merckx, greatest of all time. Uh, he's also dominating the Giro d'Italia, riding for an Italian team. Uh, so cycling is is in a state of kind of questioning itself in Italy because nobody can beat this guy. Uh, and as I said, the kind of economic miracle is also in evidence on the Adriatic coast there with the growth of tourism, which is where uh, Pantani's mother makes a living. Uh but you get this influx of like West Germans every year as well. It's it's a strange it's a strange place to grow up. Uh, next slide, please. So we're going to talk about cycling in the 1980s, and we're going to talk about it with these four characters. So on the top left there, the kindly grandfather-looking figure is a man called Francesco Conconi, who was the head coach for uh, the Italian cycling uh, organization throughout most of the 70s and 80s. Sorry, most of the 80s, I would say. 
Uh, yeah. He's a, a sports scientist who develops all these uh, techniques for measuring uh, output from cyclists and, and where where their limits lie, basically, in terms of uh, bike racing. And he does look like a friendly old grandfather guy, doesn't he? He really does. I've he does. Feeling Tell me he wasn't. Well, yeah. Yeah. He, he pioneered this method of uh, maximizing athletic performance by taking your blood out taking a litre of blood out at the top of your form and freezing it and then putting it back in when you needed it, which is pretty grim. Uh, the, yeah, lovely stuff. Top right there is a guy called uh, Beppe Cerrone. Hi, everybody. Philip here from the future. That's not uh, Giuseppe Cerrone. That's uh, Francesco Moser, who, of course, won the World Hour record in 1984 using uh, Conconi's autologous blood transfusion method, uh, the kind of poster boy for that new style of uh, brute force cycling. Sorry about that. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So this is like a new way of winning races. Is you don't have to be uh, a great climber anymore. You can You can defend in the mountains as long as you don't, lose like oodles of time and you can win it back in the time trials because bigger guys have bigger muscles and can ride faster on the flat so this is a new way of winning and these these guys the the conconi method of training is set around maximizing that power that steady state power output so you don't need to be excellent in the mountains anymore you can be competent Below him is a gentleman who looks like a James Bond villain with a penchant for cardigans. Uh, this is this is Michele Ferrari, who is like he's like the devil of professional cycling to this day. He's a, a doctor who trains with Conconi at the University of Ferrari, Ferrara, sorry, Ferrara, and uh, yeah. So he's basically been at the heart of almost every doping scandal in cycling for about twenty five years because he just does yeah. not learn. He's just a bad yeah. guy. Nothing about this picture surprises. Well, nothing I see in this picture surprises me when you say that. You know, there is yeah. a kind of there's a there's a kind of diabolical quality to him there in is. this picture. He, I'm not yeah. And he does not give mm. a fuck. And you'll see later on. There's some wonderful quotes from him later on. Uh, he, he just he just wants to see what he basically. I think he views cyclists as like lab rats, and he just wants to see what they can do. Uh, next to he him. Thought, there, I, <laughs> this is, <laughs> just complete psychopath. Yeah, pretty much. Next to him there is uh, some syringes of a substance called synthetic EPO. Or I'm not even going to try and pronounce what that uh, what that is, but you guys can, you know, listeners can look that up if they want. This is a hormone produced in the body, which uh, will go into its effects on the next slide. But uh, this exponentially increases athletic output by increasing your red blood cell count. Oh, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look just to. Uh... No, no, no. I'm gonna. We're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into that. Okay, okay. So okay. We'll go a bit deeper on that later on. And then next to, uh, next to that is Gianni Bugno, who is the the kind of first test case of of Mr. Ferrari's methods. Like he, uh, you can see, he's a bigger dude than uh, the Marco yes. Pantani, but he yeah. he starts he he wins the Giro. And he starts getting results in uh, in multi stage races by not being that great a climber, but being great at time trial. Uh, and yeah. he's one of uh, Ferrari's uh, Ferrari's clients there as well. The next slide. 
is a kind of uh, a brief explanation of what EPO does. So your body produces EPO naturally. Yeah, it's a it's a hormone that uh, leads to the production of red blood cells, which is its its primary function there. Uh, but it also gives uh, protective elements uh, in the brain, the white fat cells, and the muscles, and in the heart. And it also red blood cells uh, increase your uh, what your body uses to carry oxygen to your muscles. So you can see why this would be useful in athletics. Yeah. So this leads to an era of like big guys winning grand tours. So a guy like Coppy, who was a very small, very skinny guy, uh, but not great on the flat, gave way to next slide. People like uh, Miguel Indurain who dominated cycling in the first half of the 90s. Uh, a big guy, like a 190 centimetres tall, that's about six foot three. And he, uh, not a great climber, but could, could get through it. Wasn't going to win many stages in the mountains, but on the time trial and the flat, he was an absolute monster. Uh, seen here taking the, uh, the world hour record on a cool futuristic bike, which is... Uh, Basically, a lot of these slides, Paul, are just going to be excuses for me to show you cool bikes from the 1990s. Do you know what that reminds me of? Do you remember those cool futuristic bikes that people used to have um, yeah. in the 80s called, like, the Lynx? And it had, like, a soundboard on it. Yeah. Like, a light yeah, yeah, yeah. on it. And, like, if you ever got to borrow... I never had one. If I ever got to borrow, like, one of my friends, Lynxes, and I'd ride it around, I genuinely felt like I was driving a spaceship. That's what that's what that kind of yeah. <laughs> that's what that image kind of <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Uh, cool I mean, they ban they banned those after a while, which is a, a crying shame. So, we'll talk a little bit now about the junior and amateur career of Mr. Marco Pantani. Uh, next slide, please. Remember when I said he was a balding weirdo with sticking out ears? Yes, I remember <laughs> very well. So, <laughs> Sorry, I just saw the picture. You see that? Uh, As you said that. The kid on the left here is uh, that's uh, that's the last year of his uh, his amateur career. So we're going to talk a little bit. So as a as a junior, uh, the thing about Marco Pantani is he never won many races, right? As a professional, he only won twenty six races in his whole career, which is like a bad year for Eddie Merckx. Okay. So, okay. and as a junior, we didn't win many races either, but he always won the hardest races, the ones with the uh, the biggest mountains as well. But he also crashed a shitload. He uh, fell off his bike lots and he crashed his okay. car lots. And uh, it, it, he's like an impulsive, balding weirdo with sticking out ears. That's basically, uh, so that's going to take yeah. us up to the end of the 1980s or so. With hair, with hair is kind of the picture on the left with the... Uh, is no. last year last year as a junior? Yeah. Is a very kind. He has so a last kind year of like an amateur. An, yeah, but uh, oh, as an amateur, sorry. He has a kind of like a kind of balding elf quality to he does, him. He does, and and it's you know, I always ask myself, would he have been the star he was if he hadn't gone full bald? And the answer is no fucking way, not a chance. Yeah. You know, definitely yeah. not. He looks like he looks like the the bass player from a really <laughs> shit prog band. <laughs> I was literally just going to say prog, and you beat me to it. Yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah, he could have like a touring bass player for a, a crap version of Genesis with one original member. Yeah, he really embraced the thin and hair in prog more than any other genre. 
Like no. they 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 lean into when the hair's going, they'll grow they really it out. Do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, bald on top, ponytail in the back is a very prog. Uh, but, prog but, look. but not also that I'm now thinking of Francis Rossi from the status quo. <laughs> oh, strong look. Strong made look. A career out of that look over about twenty years. Yeah. So Oh, let's let we, we no, digress. No, no, we digress. I, like, I like digressions. I like digressions. Okay, um, so that look combined with too big white shirt, a white shirt that's clearly too big. Yeah, stonewashed jeans and a waistcoat. Acid washed. Maybe let's go all the way. acid washed jeans and and a, and a waistcoat, probably with like the Doc Martin shoe. What Strong if, look. Strong. What look. if we could go go back uh, go back three slides for me to the one with all the all the the different guys on it. Okay. What if you could combine it with Michele Ferrari's cardigan there? Like waistcoat cardigan kind of model there. Yeah, that is. That's, that's, that, yeah, that's a powerful look. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, yeah, so let's say, let's pick it up again. In, uh, 19, 1990, we're going to pick it up again. So okay. uh, Great, yeah. people are starting to notice something's happening in cycling, right? Uh, there's a guy called Lucho Herrera who's a, like a kind of proto-Pantani. He was a Colombian guy. And he said, uh, when I started to see guys with fat asses climbing mountains like aeroplanes, I knew there was something happening. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's undeniable. You're seeing bigger guys climbing mountains like smaller guys now, you know? So you also have this thing. So, right, uh, as I told you, like the, the artificial EPO boosts your red blood cell count, right? which makes your blood thicker as well, which means as your heart rate falls down, for instance, when you're asleep, uh, it can't push the blood around your body anymore and you get a blood clot and you die. So uh, there's a, a Dutch rider, like not a famous Dutch rider, a guy called Johannes Dreyer in 1990. They find him dead in his, uh, his hotel room. And that's basically what's happened to him. So you're starting to see guys are like setting the heart rate monitor so when it gets down to a certain level, an alarm goes off and they wake up and they ride a bike in the room, like on a, a trainer, to basically stay alive. So you spend all day riding, and then you get up in the middle of the night to ride so you don't die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know, wouldn't you just go and get a different job? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> literally any other job. <laughs> yeah. Any other job. Any other job that, you know, where I didn't have to exercise lest I yeah, die from a blood clot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're also seeing like, so, okay, so the, the other societal change you're starting to see is you see like from, uh, from around 1989 to 1992, you're starting to see like Eastern Europeans and Russians coming into the big European races with the uh, perestroika and glasnost and the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, bringing with them all the wonderful doping practices off uh, the Stasi and off uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, I wasn't going to say anything. Needless to say, we're, we're combining two worlds of uh, two worlds of doping here. And this is what, one of the things I love about about cycling as a sport is it is a dirty, cheap ass fucking sport. It's like so. In some ways, they always find really advanced ways to cheat, but the infrastructure. And the, the care for people around the sport is absolutely amateur as fuck. It's uh, it's really quite uh, entertaining. Is maybe the wrong word. Sometimes entertaining, sometimes horrifying uh, comparison. Yeah. So, yeah. Pantani's last race as an amateur is the 
the amateur version of the uh, the Giro d'Italia, uh, right. which he uh, which he wins, in fact, uh, and that's the kind of uh, the stepping stone for him to sign a professional contract, which uh, is with the team called Carrera. So if you look at the, the the two other pictures on that slide, there you see there in the middle his first jersey in 1992 with Carrera. Uh, and I don't, I'm not sure you can see it so well on the one on the right there, but Carrera make jeans, yeah? Yes. So oh, if you so look at the shorts there, look at the shorts on the wall picture on the yeah. right. And they're basically, yeah. they're printed like denim. They had pockets on the back, like printed on the Lycra. Oh, so like, kind of like the, that weird USA 94. Yeah, so yeah. Like so like, yeah. Denim going through it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It was kind of engineered to look like that. It's, uh, okay. it's yeah, pretty cool. Typing so, on the on the shirt from '92, where he's eating the nectarine. I yeah. think that looks slightly denimish as well. I think it, it kind of yeah, it does. It's like dungarees. Yeah, in fact, in fact you had, a, you had a team at the time that was sponsored by uh, a French like DIY store called uh, oh, what the fuck was it called? Big Mat, and their their jersey was actually made to look like uh, an apron that a workman would wear behind the counter in a hardware store. You know? <laughs> I wouldn't like wearing that one. No, that I was, wouldn't like wearing that one. That was bad news all the way down. Uh, yeah. So yeah, nineteen ninety two, he turns professional with Carrera. The second half of the season doesn't really do a lot. Uh, he meets a guy called Roberto Pregnolato, who uh, will become his uh, personal physiotherapist and confidant and potentially supplier of illegal substances. Uh, and and he says he says to his parents he says I'm going to do this for two years, and if I don't get any results, I'm just going to quit and do something else, which is uh, you know admirable uh, hubris. In his contract negotiations, he asks as a a 23 year old in his first contract with a minimum wage, he asks what his bonus is if he wins the Giro d'Italia. Strong. Yeah, and did, they, did he get an answer? Uh, yeah, they wrote a they wrote an obscene number on a piece of paper for him. Yeah, and okay, laughed, and basically laughed oh. at his face. So, nineteen ninety three. I've got a feeling that might be Chekhov's gun. <laughs> well, we'll get there. Nineteen ninety three. He makes his uh, Giro d'Italia uh, debut. Uh, Miguel Indurain, the big guy from Spain on the futuristic bike. Not that futuristic bike, but uh, yeah, he wins the Giro d'Italia. Uh, Marco's working for his his team leader to help him get a, a good finish. Uh, a guy called uh, Claudio Chiapucci, who in uh, who had the fantastic nickname of Il Diablo. Oh, there we go. Yeah, a pretty cool nickname. Uh, and he, uh, well, in 1992, he won this legendary stage of the Tour de France where he basically like rode by himself over three mountains for about 100 kilometers to win alone by five minutes. But this guy was like, this is where cycling starts to look like like the WWF. It's just like insane stuff that isn't possible. Uh, but like Marco stops. Sorry? Yeah, I wonder why. Wonder why. Yeah. Well, we'll get to Mr. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out some more interesting things about Mr. Chiapucci later on. But uh, okay. Marco stops on stage 18 uh, out of 21 with uh, muscle problems, uh, tendonitis, I think it was. Uh, but, you know, an, an honorable debut for the young man. And then his team almost destroy his career. 
so he has like a slight imbalance in his his gait, uh, a slight rotation in his pelvis, and they try to fix it with these plates in his shoes, and it fucks him, fucks his musculature, it fucks his hips completely, and he can hardly train. He can't keep up with uh, the demands of a professional cyclist because his 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 body is misaligned, and they think they're gonna they're gonna cancel his contract because he can't he can't deal with the uh, the demands of professional cycling. Uh, it's an easy fix in the end. Pregnolato, his, uh, his physiotherapist, realizes the problem and, and addresses it. But uh, this is kind of like an early setback for him. So now we're going to go to like 1994. So 1994, uh, before the Giro, there's a very famous result in cycling from a team called uh, Gewiss Balan, a Swiss team. And uh, in one of the hardest races in the spring, their riders finish first, second, and third. Uh, can you guess who their team doctor is? Oh, um, let me see. I can't remember his name. But you remember but his cardigan, of... don't you? It's Michele Ferrari. Yes. So the team doctor was was the Bond villain, the satanic yeah. Bond villain. Yeah. He's... Spectre. There we go. Then, he was Spectre. And then, the team... and then this, is, this is how little of a fuck he gives, right? A journalist asks him after this one, two, three, like, you know, we hear like your riders are treated with this uh, EPO. Uh, which is completely undetectable in drug tests, by the way. It's like, okay. is, this not, is this not dangerous for their health? And his quote is, EPO is not dangerous. It's the abuse that's dangerous. It's also dangerous to drink 10 litres of orange juice. Wow. Probably not as dangerous, though. Uh, yeah. yeah, like, it's dangerous to drink 10 litres. It's dangerous to drink... You, you might shit yourself to death, but... <laughs> You're probably not going to have to wake up in the yeah. You're not going to have to wake up in the middle of the night to exercise. No, you might have to wake up in the middle of the night for something else. But yes, many uh, many times. But like so, not to, no, not so yeah. your heart will you won't die from a blood clot. No, you won't. Okay, you might. Okay, you might shit yourself to death. However, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this 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 gets him fired. Like this is this is a public statement too far. It gets him fired from his job, but this just makes the guy's reputation, right? So now on, everybody in cycling knows if you want to cheat with the, with the synthetic EPO, call this guy. Cheat with the best. Yeah. And this, so from then on, he's, he's, he becomes a shadowy figure in the, in the, in the after, in the background of professional cycling, the invisible hand. So, Yeah, I was at this point he becomes kind of like the, the spider in the in yeah. the uh, the kind of along came a spider yeah, cliche. Exactly. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's a bad dude. Yeah. So next slide, please. You can see the denim shorts here much better, and the cool uh, Brico bug eye sunglasses and the uh, the slightly balding look of uh, Mister Pantani. Uh, yeah. So this is still back in back. sorry. Really intense, and you can really see how skinny he is. And how in tiny this. and wee. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty good. You see some, some awesome, like, baggy Italian jumpers and a lovely fade on the guy on the left here on his haircut. It's, uh, oh, that is a nice fade. It that is, is pretty, a nice fade. Yeah. Cool. That kind of, and it was, it was a very, very Italian look in the 90s, that baggy jumper with jeans. Yeah. Um, so, 1994. He has his second uh, second go at the Giro d'Italia, and he wins two mountain stages in two days. Uh, that's his first win as a professional and his second win as a professional in two days. 
and uh, he, yeah, the second the, the second day is like the what, what what we call in cycling the queen stage. So this is like the the hardest stage of the Giro d'Italia, and uh, he he attacks with about forty kilometers to go on a, a climb called the Motorolo, which is a, a renowned mythical climb of uh, Giro d'Italia history. And, uh, and he wins the stage at uh, Africa, which is a ski village, and takes uh, second place in the Giro overall. So he oh, finishes ahead oh. of Lingerain, your big Spaniard, who won the last oh. two Giro d'Italias, and he finishes behind a Russian guy called Evgeny Berzin, who's like, yeah, he's uh, he's not a cool dude. Oh, yeah. So we also... Uh, he also goes to the Tour de France in 1994 for the first time. Uh, he finishes third overall in the Tour de France on his, uh, his first participation as a second-year professional, which is uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, all of a sudden, I was, uh, that was the people handle, handling the money and his team who'd, you know, yeah, broke that ridiculous you'd figure. you to get a bit itchy, wouldn't you? I'd be starting to sweat over whether I was going to keep my job for very long. You know, <laughs> uh, I was the guy who kind of joke, oh, look at this number of right here. No bad. Yeah. And then uh, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden you're like, I might be in shit here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like, so that's uh, 1995. Because uh, he never, he, ne- he only really ever races like hard in two races. He does the Giro and he does the Tour. And that's his career. Oh. Okay. Which is uh, pretty... Uh, Anyway, Carrera, his team, are going to get a break in uh, at the end of 1995. Uh, and, well, in fact, the early part of 1995. So he didn't fall very often, Pantani, but when he did, he uh, it, it, it fucked him up. He, he, always, uh, he always hurt himself. So he gets hit by a car on a training ride in early 1995 and uh, by a local guy, a guy who recognises him as soon as he's hit him. And, and he misses the Giro d'Italia with like <laughs> kind of superficial injuries. Uh, That's not much comfort, is it? Oh well, no. you know, at least he recognised me. No, but the guy was uh, like the guy was like absolutely horrified. Apparently, he thought like an angry mob were going to kill him. Okay, didn't ask for a, for an autograph or anything. Can we have can we have a picture <laughs> while you're lying there? While we're waiting for the ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets uh, he gets back in time to go to the Tour de France. And he actually wins two stages. Next slide, please. Okay. Here we see Marco Pantani on Alpe d'Huez, which is the kind of iconic uh, climb of the Tour de France. There's the first uh, the first mountaintop finish of the Tour de France was in 1953 at Alpe d'Huez and was won by Fausto Coppi. Oh. There you go. All right. Bring so there back. is uh, Marco Pantani on his way to winning Alpe d'Huez. You can see the hair is now gone. Yeah. He's, the hair he's is now gone. It. He's embraced That's it. Really- yeah. And on the right, I'm pretty sure I had that same shorts and t-shirt combination <laughs> in about that's 1993. A, that's a global hyper colour if ever I saw. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, so he, yeah, he wins that stage. He wins another stage uh, in the Alps. But this time he's not uh, he's not fighting for the overall. He finishes 13th, uh, which, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty respectable. He also finishes third in the World Championships in uh, Colombia uh, behind uh, Miguel Indurain and uh, another guy. So the team think he hasn't raced enough in 1995. 
after the because he didn't do the Giro. So they send him to an Italian one-day race called the Milan-Turin, which goes from the city of Milan to the city of Turin. And uh, on the way into uh, Turin, towards the end of the race, he's he's not competing for the win. He's off the back with a few other riders. He's just riding to get to the finish. And uh, the police accidentally opened the road and a car coming up the hill, a Fiat Punto, would you believe, uh, hits three of them. So Another, another car? Yeah. Okay. It's three of them. It, yeah, it comes around the corner. They're coming on the wrong side of the road because they're in a bike race and the road is closed. Yeah. The road's supposed to be closed. Like, it's a blind bend. Car comes up the hill around the corner. They're going down the hill. And it's uh, it's a huge fucking crash. It's enormous. So... His bike is like snapped in two. Uh, worse than that, though, he breaks his leg so badly there's like there's bone poking through the skin in two places, and he uh, he one leg is always going to be like two centimeters shorter than the, the other leg after this. Oof. He's absolutely he's in hospital for four weeks, uh, but there's an interesting aside here to the the. Uh, the hospital stay is that during uh, so he contracts anemia after the uh, the surgery to uh, brace his leg. He has an external brace on his leg, which you'll see in the next slide. Zoom in. Yeah. Oh, there it's, we go. It's under plastic there because it's uh, yes. he's about to get in the swimming pool for some rehab. But uh, prior to this, so he contracts uh, anemia. Yeah, first of all, they notice that his, his uh, what you call hematocrit count, his uh, red blood cell count, is fucking ridiculous. It's like 54% of his blood is red blood cells. So for a normal human being, it's between like 42 and 45%. Uh, that's in the uh, first instance. And then, well, not at this point. The doctors are just like, well, that's weird. And then after they set his leg, he contracts anemia and his, his it plummets to like, 30 percent which is dangerous like life-threateningly low and even with like uh blood transfusions it doesn't pick up and uh until mysteriously one day it goes back up to like 48 percent like overnight uh Ooh. so what happened what, basically what's the theory there is uh we'll, we'll we'll go into it later on as well but the theory there is that if you abuse uh, synthetic EPO for long enough, your body forgets how to make red blood cells by itself. Right. Well, yeah, I'd kind of, I'd, I'd kind of thought that would have been the case. You know, yeah. um, <clears throat> it would somehow, it would somehow limit your ability to produce red blood yeah. cells. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, it's kind of predictable. Yeah. Um, but then mysteriously, yeah. is, is it goes back up to like forty-eight percent overnight for a few days. Uh, so maybe somebody came into the hospital with some of that. Somehow. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, so yeah, his his nineteen ninety six is basically just rehab. Uh, he grows a cool beard. Uh, he can't ride the Giro d'Italia, so instead he uh, he goes on TV uh, singing karaoke and records the theme song for the television coverage of the Giro d'Italia, which I would encourage you to uh, look up at your leisure. Uh, I'll be looking immediately after we finish yeah. this recording. I, I I I like pretty much everything about that. Like that that is 
that. <laughs> that's just, just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, there's just... Sorry, go ahead. No, I just, you know, that the type of person who has the type of personality which would enable them to do something like that is the type of person I want to be around. Yeah. I mean... I'm trying to think of who the modern kind of mainstream sport equivalent of this would be like a guy who's out with a long-term injury, whose career is under threat, who can't bear to be off the stage. So he records the theme song for the world cup or something. Yeah. Fucking incredible. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, he meets his, uh, the woman who will be like his on and off again partner for the rest of his life, basically a Danish woman called uh, Christine Jonsson. Uh, he meets her. She's a cage dancer in a local nightclub. Really? Again, again. What else? Yeah, what else? Again, it, it fits with the personality type, doesn't it? It yeah, does. It absolutely does. Uh, he also spends the summer of 1996 building a big fucking house, like uh, 10 kilometers away from uh, where he grew up. Uh, he has one wing for himself and one wing for his parents because he's a classic Italian mama's boy. His, him and his mother are like like that for the rest of their life. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, but she she despises his girlfriend. Absolutely yeah. hates her because she has like weird clothes and a Mohican. Oh, in that detail in there. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> She's a cage not, dancer in a nightclub. <laughs> yeah, like nothing, nothing a traditional Italian mother you you you'd assume would love. I've met your mother and your mother's a lovely lady, but I don't think she'd be thrilled if you brought over cage dancer from a local nightclub. I don't think she would, to be honest. No. So, <laughs> <laughs> so imagine the look on my mum's face. So, late, late in the summer, uh, Carrera, the jeans company, uh, confirmed that they're withdrawing from uh, sponsoring the cycling team. Presumably to avoid paying out Marco Pantani's bonuses in the future. Uh, yeah. So his contract is now null and void. He needs to find a uh, a new sponsor. So this is around the time. Like, this is the kind of first flush of like good quality live uh, Tour de France coverage and Giro d'Italia coverage that you can watch all day. But it's not expensive to run a cycling team in, in this area. You know, like five or six million euros a year. That'll get you. You know all the exposure you can want on it. Your name on a jersey on TV. So he meets a guy called uh, Romano Cenni, who owns a supermarket chain in uh, in Emilio Rigano, where Pantani's from, uh, called Mercatoni Uno, and that will become Pantani's sponsor for the rest of his days. Image rights are kind of becoming a thing as well now, so you can get uh, external sponsorship contracts in addition to your salary from uh, from your, your team. And like this is going to make Marco Pantani one of the richest guys in Italian sport for the rest of his days. His, uh, his image rights are absolutely incredible. So he's, he's, his face is on like soap powder, his face is on beer bottles, his face is on posters in the, uh, in the supermarket, he's advertising Citroens, he's, uh, he's a star. He's a fucking yeah. so, star, right? So right now, we're talking height of his power. Absolute no, 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 no. The height of his name, power is still to come, but he, he's a guy oh, who looks okay. unique. He's a guy who's like, he, he does weird quotes and things. Uh, and like, no, okay, so he's, he, it's only like the end of the summer he can actually start back training. Okay. And, it, and he shows so, up to like a, an amateur race through the Dolomites, uh, dressed as a woman. <laughs> 
He just shows up with a wig and yeah, some pink lycra or something, and nobody recognizes him until he wins. Oh, yes, I think is fucking sadly. There's no photos of this. Which, which, gonna Google for photos. Um, okay, off no end. There's no photos of this, so uh, yeah, this is the man he is. He's uh, this is why he's he's a sporting maverick, yeah. So, yeah, I'm getting it now. So, it's not the height of his power, obviously. He's you know, he's still coming back from an injury, but he is like he's known. This guy is known and kind of known and notorious, I guess, or kind of gaining some notoriety for his his <laughs> his quotes and his actions and his his uh, a, his lifestyle. He's a one off. He's a one off. Uh, also, at this point, uh, the uh, the French uh, develop a test for synthetic EPO. Oh, a urine test, in fact. So uh, they they get to the point where. Uh, they want to do like a blind study to see if it works. So they ask like a load of professional cyclists, would you uh, anonymously submit uh, urine so we can make sure our test works? Because you're, you're the people most likely to have a shitload of EPO in your veins. Yeah. And every yeah. single one of them refuses. Of course, of course. Well, it's, it's just for medical science, but still like, no. Uh, these you don't guys, even want to change it. You don't want a chance. You don't want. You don't want any that anywhere near. You. No. So this is like uh, these French. These French studies estimate that synthetic EPO will give you an uplift in athletic performance of six or seven percent. Right. Uh, so if you think about like what what's six or seven what's what's six percent of a ten thousand meters race, Keegan? Six hundred meters. Six hundred meters. Yeah, yeah. And uh, imagine winning a 10,000 metres race by 600 metres. That's a long way. That's a long way. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm on a jog, if I'm on a jog and I look at my watch and it tells me I've got 600 metres to go until the end, I, I'm I'm gutted. Like, <laughs> I'm genuinely, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. Yeah, that's a long way. That's a really long way. So, like, this is like what you can expect, like, in a comparison with a clean, a clean person of equal ability, you'll finish in a ten thousand meters race, six hundred meters ahead. And then, yeah, there's a guy called Bjarne Rees, a Danish guy, wins the Tour de France in 1996. So, Bjarne Rees was a fucking bang average professional cyclist for the first half of his career, and then he wins the Tour de France. His nickname was uh, Mr. 60%, which okay. is uh, a reference to the percentage of red blood cells in his uh, in his body. Wow. I, I, and hidden out in the open. So clear. Yeah, pretty much. Like, if you, yeah, if, you, if you were in the sport, you knew all the shit, yeah? It, you know, this yeah. is like the WWE thing. It's called uh, kayfabe. Uh, well, we'll get into kayfabe another time. Right, so 1997 dawns, and uh, next slide, please. So this is the new uh, Mechatoni Uno kit that he's wearing, which is, it's no jean shorts, but whatever. You see there, uh, 
He's next to two guys, the guy in the uh, red and white spotted jersey there is uh, Richard Verwant, who's a French guy who is also a very good climber. And the guy behind him is uh, Jan Ulrich, who is a, a young guy who came out of the East German system. Uh, both of these guys will play a role going forward. So that's the that, is your, that is your classic sort of cycle and jersey. That is... That's yeah, just that like, like somebody loaded up a load of sponsor logos in a cannon and shot them at the yeah. uh, at the front of that jersey. Yeah, it's very cool though. That's how you it's feel. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I just think you know you'd see someone who was in an indie band in like two thousand and four <laughs> wearing that that with like drawing pipes uh, on campus. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a cool. I I like that. Lovely like stuff. That. So yeah, he's also riding yeah. there, interestingly, a bike by a company called Bianchi, who were uh, oh. a sponsor to Fausto Copy of all people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a classic uh, Italian trope. So he's got his little goatee beard now. He, he starts wearing a bandana and he gives himself the nickname of uh, Il Pirata, the pirate, which is pretty cool. Yes. That's a cool nickname. Giving yourself a nickname. I think that's it. That's it. That's a, a, a kind of signal that the wheels are starting to fall off. Mm, yeah, maybe. Who can say? Consistent uh, people yeah. call you that is when the wheels have definitely started to fall off. So his team here is uh, he's got 10 of the guys, 10 of the same riders who are with him at, uh, at Carrera. He's got a couple of the same like team managers around him. It's like it's, but the environment is built around him, basically. Yeah. He's the, okay. he's the main guy in this team. Uh, there's also an interesting thing. You know, I was telling you about Bjarne Reese being Mr. 60%. Yeah. So the UCI, the people who run cycling, they introduced this doping test uh, where if your red blood cell count is above 50%, you've got to take two weeks off. It's called a health check. It's not an anti-doping thing because they can't prove that you're using it, but it's a fair sign that you're, you're altering your blood values artificially. Uh this will definitely not come back in the future. Forget okay. that piece of information. You're never going to hear it again. It is forgotten. I don't even know what you're talking about. Who knew? So he comes back to the Giro in 1997, right? And uh, in the first week of the Giro, which is normally like a phony war for the guys who are actually trying to win the thing, uh, he crashes and he injures the leg that he, he, he injured at the end of 1995. Uh, would you like to guess how that, you know, knowing what you know about Marco Pantani's penchant for uh, ironic and ridiculous things, would you like to guess what he fell over on his bike? What he hit to crash? Ooh. I mean, please tell me it's like a horse and cow. It, it was a black cat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. On the nose. No, on the nose, right, right on the nose. Yeah, history doesn't record what happens to the cat, uh, <laughs> which is uh, yeah. I shouldn't imagine it was good though. No. So uh, yeah, he completes that stage, but he's torn a muscle, so he has to stop. Yeah, okay. Uh, on, in the first week, so it's he's been okay. built up as he's he's going to be one of the people competing for the Giro d'Italia, and for the the third year in a row, he's he's nowhere near. So. He returns to action. This is, you know, this is the the rhythm of his year: is the Giro d'Italia and then the Tour de France. So, 
He returns, he comes back to the Tour de France, and again he wins at Alpe d'Huez in a time that has never been beaten. Like the time he spent, like you know, from the bottom of the mountain to the top was like thirty-seven minutes or something. It's never been beaten to this day. It's a uh, twenty-six years, still not, still not been touched. Yeah, exactly. And uh, oh. he wins it. He wins another stage two days later in a place called Morzine, which is a lovely little ski village. Uh, Jan Ulrich, the young guy from East Germany, he wins the tour, and everybody thinks because he's like the ultimate guy from like that era of he just wins he dominates the time trials and he uh he can, he can basically do okay in the mountains yeah so he wins the tour de france uh pantani's third and uh the french guy in that photo richard Varenk, he's uh he's second so everybody thinks jan ulrich is going to go on and uh dominate professional cycling on in the tour de france for uh years like five years or something mad so this is, you know, everybody's starting to think maybe is this guy is this guy like a uh, is this guy a nearly man? Is this just a guy who can win stages? But like the way cycling is now, because he's always going to lose time in a time trial to these bigger guys. Is he just a guy who's going to win stages? So he, uh, yeah, he gets to the uh, the Giro d'Italia where he's expected to uh, to win some stages, but not uh, maybe not the overall as we discussed. He's people are starting to see him like as a bit of a a nearly man but now in addition to his shaved head and his little beard he's 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 got a diamond nose stud and a diamond earring <laughs> because because <laughs> why not because why he's, not? Mark, he's Marco Pantani that's why yeah. so yeah. he's uh, yeah so you got a lot of these kind of bigger guys who are dominating the sport, like a Swiss guy called Alex Zuller, uh, Tonkov again, and an Italian guy, Ivan Gotti. Uh, and Pantani's losing time in the flat stages and the time trials because he doesn't give a shit about them. doesn't care. Uh, he starts chiseling it back in the mountains in the second week, but everybody is pretty sure he's uh, he's not going to make it. Before the, uh, before the last week in the Dolomites, he's got four minutes to make, make back on uh, Zula and uh, Tonkov. Uh, so, he comes up with a plan in the 17th stage that he's going to uh, attack from the bottom of the uh, the Marmalada, which is uh, a very hard climb in the Dolomites. Uh, and he asks his teammate, when does it start? And his teammate replies, we're halfway up it. <laughs> You think you think he would have you think he would have done his homework before, but here we go. He's Pantani. He's Pantani, and he's he's impulsive. He's uh, he's the pirate, you know. Uh, yeah. So he doesn't win that stage, but he gets second, and he's he's got enough to kind of get uh, get back to like touching distance of uh, of the pink jersey, and then he uh, yeah, again he finishes. Yeah, sorry, that stage he does take the pink jersey. He's uh, he kind of just just about gets it over. Uh, the next uh, mountain stage is like the big ones, what we call the, the Queen stage, uh, which is Queen stage in cycling is like the hardest stage on a on a tour. And in this one, he knows he has to take as much time as he can because he needs to uh, he needs to pad his lead before a time trial on the last day. So he. Uh, he does this cool thing where he uh, 
He used to, he wears his stupid bandana as well. So he lashes the bandana to the floor. He lashes his drinks bottles to the floor and he lashes his diamond nose stud to the floor. Shedding, or he claims later on he, he heard a voice telling him to do this. He makes this absolutely insane attack that nobody can follow. Like a couple of guys try, they manage to hang on to him for like a minute or two. And then he uh, he sails over the line in his baggy jersey, in his Jesus Christ pose, as you see on slide 17. Yeah, great slide. Iconic image. I would say. Absolutely. I would say definitely. If, um, if you know, you wanted an image of Pantani, if you were like Pantani's biggest fan and you wanted a picture of him, like, I don't know, in your bathroom for daily inspiration, <laughs> I think that would be, oh, that would be ones. the iconic. There's some good ones to come as well, so uh, hold that thought. Uh, but he, uh, he's he got a minute and a half going into the final time trial, okay. uh, which he needs to, nobody expects he's going to, he's going to, he's going to carry that across the line. Uh, so, um, just, just a quick question. So can you give me a bit of clarification, uh, clarification on um on the difference between those mountain stages and the time trials, just so, for the, the yeah. layperson's view. The layperson. So the idea is in a grand tour, you've got like 21 stages. Uh, you'll have two rest days as well. The idea is, is to give everybody, all kinds of riders, a chance. But normally the stages that will decide the time differences for the overall will be a time trial, which is you ride on your own against the clock. Uh, it's usually about 40 or 50 kilometres. Uh, and... You know, that's where the bigger guys can make a difference because they're basically more powerful. Mountains, it's like a, a normal race where you have everybody starts together, uh, but you'll have one or more big fucking mountains and then it comes down to a combination of, well, basically an interplay between power and weight. Basically, who can asphyxiate themselves the slowest? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds marvellous. Sounds yeah, marvellous. It's a great sport. <laughs> Those time trial days, um, just one more yeah, quick yeah. question. So on those on those time trial days, they they are the days where they will literally just go flat out 50 kilometers and yeah. you know just put themselves through whatever they're capable of putting themselves through. And then how long do they have to recover after that? Is is the next stage the next day? Usually it'll be the next day. Like I say, in those three weeks, you get two rest days, and they'll normally be mm -hmm. on a Monday. Uh but yeah, usually you you want to put your biggest like spectacle stages, which will normally be the big mountain ones on the day before, because that's what's going to really fuck everybody. Because a time trial is only going to be like, it's going to be less than an hour's effort. Okay. Yeah, it's an intense okay. effort, but it's a short effort. So yeah, on the okay. last day of the time trial, basically, Tom Coffey bottles it. Yeah. He actually loses time to uh, to Marco. So uh, Marco wins the Giro d'Italia. Italy goes crazy. Everybody loves him. And uh, there's one slight fly in his ointment is, uh, I don't know if you remember the 50% health limit we talked about earlier, where only 50% of your blood can be red blood cells. Well, a teammate of his failed that test on the morning of the last stage. So he, had to, he, d he didn't finish the, uh, the Giro. He got sent home for, sit at home for two weeks. And in the, uh, in the shitty standard of journalism that surrounds cycling and almost every other sport, which will become a recurring theme on this show, Nobody asks the question, like, how did this happen? <laughs> Nobody asks why. <laughs> they just go, oh, cool little Italian guy won the tour. Nice one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so he gets interviewed on the day after when he uh, he's just won the uh, the Giro, and they ask him what you're gonna how you're gonna celebrate, and he says I'm gonna go home, lock myself in my bedroom with Christina and a box of Viagra for ten days. Okay, okay. Mr. Pantani. Uh, what he actually does is he goes home and climbs out the bathroom window, gets in his car, and goes off to go fucking mad for like five days. <laughs> um, so, so a little bit of clarification on go mad. I mean, obviously, this guy is he's nuts. I mean, he is he's he's nuts, he clinically he nuts. So, so like, by going mad, do you mean are we going like on a five day bender? So or, he shows up. Know, he shows up again at ten o'clock the next morning for like a press conference. In uh, Chasing Attico, next to Christine, who must who, who who deadpanned it, who wasn't like where the fuck have you been all night? She uh, she deadpanned it. <laughs> but then, like every year between the the tour and the Giro, the Giro and the tour, sorry, he would have ten days off. So you basically, you got three weeks between the uh, the tour fi- the Giro finishing and the tour starting. And he uh, he basically disappears for those old uh, ten days of those three weeks, then goes back to work. Okay. Given the, given the nature of his demise, I imagine that is you know there's a lot of there's a lot yeah. of drinking and a lot of yeah uh, a lot of a lot, a lot of stimulants of, a lot of other stuff. But we'll yeah that's that's a good question as to uh, because yeah it's it's a good question as to when that started and there's okay. that's one theory is that he was already uh, enjoying enjoying uh, or dabbling in cocaine at that point. Uh, but my my notes here says uh, ten days of fucking madness. Okay. <laughs> I just assumed that that madness yeah. had had cocaine involved. Not not admitted and not proven, but uh, okay. yeah. The uh, so we're coming up to the Tour de France now. The Tour de France that year starts in Dublin, which is uh, yeah. interesting. Uh, and that means all the teams have to get on two specially chartered ferries with all the cars and everything and all the trucks, two specially chartered ferries from Dunkirk. So next slide, please. In an incredibly rare instance of Belgian police doing their fucking job, uh, some some chaps from the Belgian border police stop uh, a car from the Festina team, who were one of the biggest teams in the world at the time, driven by a Belgian guy called uh, Willy Voot, and even more uh, out of character for the uh, the Belgian police, they decide to search it. And in there, they find like a basically a mobile pharmacy uh, destined for the, uh, for the Tour de France. And uh, yeah, Willy originally tries to like brazen it out a bit like, but he's, uh, it's, it's clear that he's, uh, he's out of his element after 12 hours in custody. Uh, and he says, yeah, all this shit. It's a shitload of EPO, some amphetamines, uh, testosterone, uh, steroids, and a quantity of what's called the uh, Pobelge uh, on his product, on his person, which is a uh, delightful mix designed to keep people driving through the night off amphetamine, caffeine, heroin, Cocaine and whatever else you want to grind in there. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, and I shouldn't be surprised that a cycling team, you know, so drugs by this point is so 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 kind of oh, 
pervasive yeah. that even the team driver is on what is essentially is the, a supercharged guy, yeah. speedball. This is a physiotherapist. Like a, <laughs> the standard physiotherapist. A, so... Yeah. James Brown quantity yeah. of drugs. But what you got it right, okay. So what this is, right, is this is where cycling starts changing, right? This is where fans start, the lid's off now, yeah? So this is where fans start looking at this and they start talking about who's doping and who's not doping as opposed to who's winning and who's not winning, right? But the people inside the sport, they haven't caught up to this yet and they don't understand what's happening. So for them, it's just like, do what you always did. Deny, deny, deny. Nothing to do with us. This is just a rogue guy who's got like 10,000 euros worth of drugs in his car. So, okay. yeah, the race starts like somewhat under a cloud and given his, his first 10 days of his holiday, you won't be surprised to hear that in the first very short time trial, which was about 10 kilometers long, Pantani finishes 181st out of 189 guys. <laughs> he's already given up he's already given up four minutes to uh, Jan Ulrich who won the tour the last year okay so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, like, uh, so you know he's been on he's on he's been on a you know a 10 day let's 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 make uh, let's make no bones semi- about it yeah a semi-safe assumption that you know he's been doing a lot of drugs in this in this uh, or at least some drugs in this uh, in this ten-day hiatus. Now, who are the eight riders who finished behind <laughs> him on that first time trial? Were they I would just, love to know. Were, just were they just you know yeah, were they just amateurs who you know came up with the registration fee? I think or- probably some, <laughs> some guys some guys whose job is. Uh, sprinting for the stage the next day or whatever, but I imagine Mario Cipollini was one of them. But you, we'll introduce Mario Cipollini another time. He's on. Yeah. He's on the list. So he's telling us. He's telling the press. He's just there to win stages. Uh, I mean, like Ulrich loses. Sorry, Pantani keeps losing time to uh, to Ulrich and the rest of the guys through the Pyrenees, which is the first mountains, and. We get to the, uh, we get, well, okay, we'll, we'll go through the more of the fallout of the Festina affair first. So, sorry, the, the drugs bust becomes known as the Festina affair. And Festina are forced to quit the Tour de France with uh, Varenk, one of the favourites. And there's a couple of other teams get thrown out when the French police, like smelling blood, start raiding hotels and searching through bins and stuff. So, next slide, please. The riders kind of go on strike on one stage. And they're all, they all stop the bike after 10 kilometers. They sit down on the tarmac and they say, this is it. Tour de France finishes here. Unless you can guarantee there's no more uh, police raids. Uh, Marco is one of the uh, the ringleaders of this for some weird, unknown reason. Uh, there's also a really cool piece of cycling history on the left of these, these uh, four-spoked spinergy wheels. I love these. Ooh, yeah, pretty sweet. Yeah. Uh, so in the end, like the the organizer Jean-Marie Leblanc, he makes uh, he makes certain promises to the the leaders of the riders, and they agree to carry on the race. These are lies. These are just lies. It's, it's, the, the raids continue, and all the Spanish teams withdraw en masse, and uh, it's uh, it's a much reduced field going into the uh, the third week. 
So Pantani is at this point nine minutes down on Jan Ulrich, going into the first stage in the Alps where it absolutely pisses it down, right? Uh, next slide. And about halfway up the Col de Galibier, which is a 18-kilometre long climb, he just jumps out of the field and proceeds to absolutely destroy everybody, right? He finishes this stage. He's done it with about, what, 30, 10, about 50 kilometres to go. And he's alone from this point until the finish line, and he puts nine minutes into Ulrich. He, he takes the he takes the yellow jersey on this stage and he wins like one of the, just one of the ultimate cycling stages. It's incredible. Uh, from that, he kind of he, he he just consolidates. He doesn't need to uh, to attack anymore. Uh, he lets Jan Ulrich win a stage at one point, but he's only the seventh rider in history to win the Giro and the Tour in the same year. The last one being our old friend uh, Miguel and Durain. Okay, so I mean, this is this is. Um, have there been any since? Is this is this like a name? Um, no, it's never been done since. He's, heard of. he's the okay. last one to do it, and only seven people in history have done it. Uh, this is like one of the most successful cycling seasons of all time, and he's credited with like saving the Tour de France. Yeah, because he's a guy yeah, who's okay. not been involved in these scandals. His team has kind of sailed between the cracks there, and he's well. You can imagine how famous he is in Italy now, right? So this, this this kind of cements this sort of mythical status, but also it's it's even more kind of made even more kind of special or significant because yeah. you know it, it would what would have ordinarily have been a disaster for the tour um, with all these drug scandals. He kind of pulls it out of yeah, the mire by doing something. Honestly, like the race was the miraculous. Five minutes, yeah, the five the race was within five minutes of stopping and not starting again. It was, uh, it was like that. So, yeah. In his mind, he's saved the Tour de France. In a lot of people's eyes, he's saved the Tour de France. Uh, Romano Prodi, who's just become the uh, the Prime Minister of Italy, uh, does a big uh, televised phone call with him because he's taken the leaf out of Silvio Berlusconi's book. Of like, cause Berlusconi had the uh, AC Milan, hey? uh, yeah. which is like ironic because uh, Marco's an AC Milan fan. Uh, yeah. So after this, he realizes like the amount of money that's like pouring into him uh, with sponsorships and endorsements and everything. He needs a manager to like uh, to do all this stuff for him because his phone just doesn't stop ringing. So he hires this woman who works with uh, remember Max Biaggi, the motorbike guy. Yes. Yeah. He hires uh, a woman called Manuela Ronchi, who's uh, his manager, and he's uh, you know this makes him even richer than he was before it's uh i mean just as an example like when he died he had 20 million euros just in his current account and he he, he spent a lot of money but he was quite sensible with it as well he was buying uh buying houses all over the place so he's he, you know every year he's making a couple of million euros on rents so just to add to all the flaws he's a fucking landlord as well <laughs> i liked him until that last sentence so. <laughs> He doesn't look like the kind of guy who'll fix your boiler either, does he? No. He looks like the kind of guy who would just stare at you in silence <laughs> yeah. when you asked about the boiler. <laughs> yeah. And then until you just kind of walked off. And then evict you. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a third grand tour every year in uh, Spain in the in September. It's the Vuelta a España. 
and uh, all the guys who got thrown out of the Tour de France go there. So it's like a really good field. And there's this guy who's just come back from uh, a life-threatening cancer called Lance Armstrong, who finishes fourth. But uh, that's uh, obviously you'll never hear of him again. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not. Uh, I was win- yeah, I was wondering when he would show up. Well, this is uh, this is what's called uh, foreshadowing. It's a literary device we employ to. Uh, Enhance the narrative. So, 1999. This is where this story stops being about cycling, right? Until now, this has been a list of like cycling accomplishments. Now it gets interesting. An hour in. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, he goes to the Giro and he dominates it, right? Absolutely dominates it. He wins four stages. Uh, He's not taking any shit from anyone he's just every time he can win he's winning so he's pissing people off as well because you know a lot of teams depend on on you know a stage winning the Giro that's your contract for the next year uh, and he doesn't need to win these it's just total dominance there's a stage where he uh, his chain comes off his bike at the bottom of a, of a mountain and he spends 30 seconds putting it back on as all the favourites like ride away then he stops again to change his bike and then he he yeah, goes past them all and wins. It's, uh, yeah. So there's one mountain stage left and the Giro starts that morning in a little ski town. Next slide, please. Called Madonna de Campiglio. Look at that. That is pretty nice, eh? That is stunning. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, so... Drug testers from the UCI who are like the FIFA of cycling show up at his hotel at like eight o'clock in the morning, take a, a blood test from him and they test it and they realize it's got 52% of red blood cells in it. Uh-oh. Oops. <laughs> so <laughs> they, uh, they somewhat shit it and yeah. they, uh, they test it again like four times. And they realize, yeah, this is definitely over the limit. So the day of the last hard stage, the Giro d'Italia throws out the leader of the Giro d'Italia, who is Marco Pantani. That is, yeah, that is, uh, Uh, I mean, that's quite the scandal. Um, Just before we get back into the the, the story, can um, just a quick question. So when you say he's just dominating, he's winning stages, he's, you know, he's he's just blowing everybody else away, he's stopping to change his bike, stopping to change his uh, his chain and still going on and winning these stages. He's going to sort of average, say like a very good performance in which uh, an... um, in which a cyclist would win one of these grand tours, is there a sort of average? Like how many, how many, how many stages would you expect to be winning if I'm you were right, going to okay, win? Okay, so tour? so there's guys who've won no stages and won a grand tour. There's a couple of those. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's guys who've won. I mean, there's a Belgian guy who won 13 stages in the Vuelta one year and didn't win. Uh, so average like two or three maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's other ones. There's other ones that you know. Normally, the stages that you can win, but you're always going to need favors down the road more than you need that extra win. You know, so people kind of there's some horse trading in this as well. Like I said, cycling is a disgusting, dirty sport. Uh, 
Because, <laughs> um, you know, from a kind of, like I say, from a lay, lay, layman's point of view, you just kind of expect whatever. You're going to win the tour. You, 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 you just dominate. You want to dominate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this, this is like, I mean, you see this with Armstrong after his comeback as well. And everybody's just like, oh, why do you need to do this? And it just sets him up to, it just sets him up for a fall. So anyway, he's, he's expelled from the race and he's forced to take a two-week sit-down, right? So this isn't a doping conviction, though. This is a health check, yeah? Oh, so, yeah, they said it was a health, the health check, like so, break. Yeah, exactly. So he can just take it on the chin, right? He, yeah. can just, he can just sit on his ass and he can say, like, all right, no problem. But this is a guy who, who's bought into the whole hype around himself as being, like, the saviour of Italian cycling, the guy who saved the Tour de France. And he's already he's he's always been awkward with people looking at him, which is all his mystical pronouncements and everything. But now he's like he's starting to get paranoid about it, right? And he can't he can't bear the thought of people talking about him behind his back. And there's all these conspiracy theories start springing up around him, uh, like some people saying like the mafia did it to like uh, uh, not make a loss on all the the books they're running on the Giro d'Italia. Uh, his manager Ronchi says she saw the team doctor in a nightclub at three a.m. in the uh, the little ski town where the uh, the stage was, and uh, I mean none of these really hold any water because we all know what cycling was like in those days. He's he's just fucked it up. He's fucked him. Yeah. He's fucked up topping himself up at some point in the last few days. So, yeah. but this also gives him that kind of feeling that he's the only person who's been. He's the only person being punished for a sport that's like rotten to the core. Yeah. And he feels like he feels like they've uh, they've singled him out as like the tall poppy, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of the, what was the uh, you know, he's the superstar, it's a big scalp. Yeah, yeah, and then in June, uh, Michele Ferrari, our devil in a cardigan. Doctor Ferrari. His offices are raided. And they take away his computers and he's charged with doping cyclists. So, you know, again, people want to know what's gone on with uh, with Marco's health check as well. And later in June, the Olymp- Italian Olympic Authority set up an investigation into uh, into what's happened there. Uh, the team doctor's like, I don't know, I don't remember. Uh, all the questions are just, yeah, no clue, whatever, uh, yeah, uh, normal, normal things. Everything's normal, and the team manager just just flat out insults the uh, the people asking the questions. And in the uh, the report of the twenty third of June, because you know right, this is a guy who's already got problems with people like looking negatively at him and hates the idea of people talking about him behind his back. And the Italian Olympic Authority released a report that says they have serious doubts and confusion around the legality of the athlete's behavior and his integrity as a sportsman in that he's provided no serious explanation of the causes of the sudden hematocrit increase and has therefore not cooperated as he should have done in the quest for the truth. Now, they still can't prove that he's taken EPO because there's no test for it. So... For somebody who's that sort of seemingly, you know, he strikes me as quite narcissistic, obviously, and may or may not be habitually using something that a substance that makes you paranoid. 
<laughs> well, well, right, okay. So, uh, <laughs> this is the point where it's, it's it's on note that he's he's uh, he started taking cocaine, and he tells people that remember that uh, Italian uh, concept of like looking for the truth behind behind the perceived reality. So, according to the way he tells it, like one of his mates at this point was like, "Hey." Hey, you want to try some of this cocaine? That will really help you, like, see clearly what the truth is. Because the best thing to give somebody who's paranoid, depressed, and believes there's a conspiracy against them, <laughs> cocaine. Yes, like, it is like that is that is that the doctor would recommend. You know, Absolutely. you're feeling paranoid, you're feeling a bit anxious. Have a stripe, especially. <laughs> Especially as you've been a habitual drug user for your job for like a decade now. <laughs> issues with dependence as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. No worries, mate. Get on it. No Get on that. Yeah. So he tells, yeah. So at, at some point, right, he's got to choose because he's going out like every night at this point. And this is where he's, he tells Christine that he started with cocaine around this point. So at some point, it's gonna it's come down to a choice for him because he's he can come back to ride it anytime he wants, yeah. And at some point, he has to make a decision between the Tour de France and cocaine, and he's like, "You know what? Cocaine, baby." He doesn't. Yeah, I thought you were going to say the tour. I thought nope. you were going to say the tour. Absolutely nope. not. Nope. Doesn't race Just... again. Doesn't race again in nineteen ninety nine. Can't face the. Uh, can't face the uh, the shame, but anyway, luckily, like uh, Lance Armstrong comes along in 1999 to win the Tour de France and show everybody what clean cycling looks like. So, few problem solved. End of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, lads. Yeah, brilliant. Oh no, wait, Cheers, sorry, I've got oh, that wrong. Oh, hang on, I've got that wrong. During the Tour de France, a prosecutor in Turin starts looking into his medical records from that crash he had back in 1995. And digs out the anemia thing and finds out that his is <laughs> at one point his his red blood cell count was as high as sixty percent, mm. and he's like, ah shit. <laughs> <laughs> so in six months, like everything's starting to turn to shit, right? Yeah. Everything. So I'm going to try and get through before our 40 minutes is up, because I've got less than 10 minutes of it left now. I'm going to try and get through two, th- try the rest of 1999, and then we'll pick it up for the last four years in one uh, one fell swoop. So anyway, okay. right? November, he tells his manager that he's a cocaine addict, right? Okay. And she says, and I quote, I never again ask for money from Marco, because the relationship of a manager with an athlete is a percentage of what you make them earn. But with Marco, I wasn't only a manager because in the team, I was an administrator. So I was there in the first person. I was the team manager. I was Marco's manager and I was the head of communication in the press office. So I had four roles, but I never took money from any of these. I went four times a week to Chesnamitico. What could I do? Ask for petrol money at the end of the month? How could I have been credible and helped him if I'd have made it a question of money? In the end, I said, a friend doesn't do it for money. Now, this is a huge fucking big ethical red flag, right? <laughs> yeah. You know your client is addicted to a drug that is both illegal in the sport he practices and in society at whole, right? Yes. And you didn't bring it up with the people who are paying the bills, right? 
And if she did make it aware of them, they'd be funded a fraud. And if she didn't, they, you put in a guy back, who's clearly in no condition to go back on a bike, you're putting him back on a bike at every opportunity because all these people's livelihoods depend on him. Yeah? Yes. That's friendship, yeah. Keegan. That's friendship. Yeah. That's friendship. That's friendship. friendship. Yeah. What, what a human being. What a human being. What, what a humanitarian. A... What a humanitarian. Yeah. Anyway, in December, right? Uh, in December, an Italian newspaper, La, 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 La Repubblica, publishes the results of uh, a police raid on kindly old man uh, Francesco Conconi's offices, a uh, mentor of Michele Ferrari. Next slide, please. And two files, two fucking old school, crappy, your dad using a computer files uh, in a WKS database and the Microsoft Works database on the right there are recovered giving like blood values for about 70 different professional cyclists across the last seven years. Uh, Marco's name is in it for three years, showing all his red, all his blood values, and what, what, how much EPO he was treated with every month for three years. I remember his old team leader, Claudio Chiapucci. Yes. Right. Now, at one point, he, he has a red blood cell count of seventy percent. <laughs> in 1994, when he's when Marco's working for him, right? It's like. That's what you'd expect in, I don't know, like a walrus or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is. It's a frankly staggering, staggering revelation. So, yeah. quote briefly from Matt Rendell here to, to kind of bring this section to a close. This is like when the career of Marco Pantani as a top-level cyclist is in free fall, basically. He'll have a brief mm -hmm. hurrah after this, but... Oh, okay. Yeah, so... No charges have been brought against Marco. There's still room for denial. But the publication of those records presented him with three shattering revelations. The first was that his blood values for the first three years of his professional career have been recorded. The second one was that those records and every other moment of his professional career were now under scrutiny by the police. The third was that the national press had access to the ongoing investigations. That sensation of being observed was only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Cornered, Marco. You're cornered, mate. Yeah, yeah. Now, what he could have done here, right, is he could have done what a lot of, well, not many people have ever done, and put their hands up and said, yeah, yeah. done it. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is the sport, this is like the the the, the milieu that I, I work in, you know? This is how it is. Uh, maybe we can change that because, you know, you're getting a lot of dumb kids with not many options, and you're putting them in a position where they have to choose between the only career they can do successfully and turning their bodies into a chemical stockpile. Yeah. Once again, a theory that will become uh, uh, entrenched as we go further through this, uh, pod, this, this episodes of this podcast. Year 2000, after his uh, legal woes begin. So he goes to a training camp at the end of January with the team, south of Spain. Nice little getaway. Uh, yeah, at the uh, the the... The party at the end of it, he pulls out about 60 grams of cocaine <laughs> in front of his work colleagues. Okay, okay. <laughs> that, is, that is, that's a lot. 
but now, <laughs> so now everybody in the team knows about it, except the people who pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. So he's getting quite brazen. He's getting quite brazen. He's getting quite reckless because at the start of March, he totals his Ferrari as well. Uh, and then, yeah, end of April, he gets charged over the uh, the, the Turin incident, the hospital incident there uh, for the new crime of sporting fraud. Uh, says he has broken in the head and won't ride the Giro. He, of course, rides the Giro. Uh, he's... he's <laughs> Nowhere near the front of the race, but he helps his teammate to uh, to victory, including by absolutely destroying all the guys' rivals on uh, one of the big mountain stages. Uh, he goes to the Tour de France then for the last time and gets his dick kicked in the first mountain stages. Armstrong absolutely does him over, destroys him. So he knows he's not going to win the Tour de France, but he looks at Armstrong and he can't believe that a guy who's like... 25 centimetres taller than him is that much faster than him on a mountain. So he, he decides to try and make Armstrong lose the Tour de France instead of trying to make him try to win it himself. So next slide, please. Okay. You know the Mont Ventoux? Yes. Yeah, so from conversations yeah, a very famous mountain in Tour de France history. Tommy Simpson, British guy, uh, died there from uh, amphetamine and alcohol poisoning. Uh and heat stroke and heat stroke that didn't help. So he has a, a right old ding dong with Lance Armstrong there. Uh, Armstrong gives him the stage at the end, and Pantani decides to very graciously uh, start an argument about it. And uh, Armstrong calls him a shit stirrer. Pantani uh, wins the next stage, but very very nearly makes Armstrong lose the tour. Like that was as hard as Armstrong had to work for most of his Tour de France career that day. Uh, and he forgot to eat. And then, yeah. But then Pantani stops. So this isn't a bad sporting performance for a, a current cocaine addict. A guy who, as you've seen, is not averse to taking 60 grams of uh, cocaine on a work trip. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm, still, I'm still a little shocked by that. That's <laughs> an unbelievably large quantity of him. That's, I'm going to just pull out during a work trip. Yes, that's like a, a bag the size of your fist. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in August, the Italian Olympic Committee decide that if you want to go to the Olympics, you have to do these uh, blood tests called I Don't Risk My Health. That's the campaign. So uh, without getting into the hematology of it, it ain't good for Marco Pantani, right? There's uh, some serious anomalies there. There's a big fight on whether he goes to uh, Italy, whether he goes to Sydney or not to compete. Uh, eventually, he gets through on a technicality. He goes, he rides around, and he finishes 69th. Nice. Marvellous. Now, is that he finishes 69th because he gets through on a technicality, so he is, is his performance just due to... You know, not taking care of himself, or do you think his performance would be due to, in he's order not, to evade capture, he stopped taking no, performance? It's, it's neither of those things. It's not. It's oh, not okay. a course that's suited to him, and the only reason he wants to go is because they told him he couldn't go. So, okay. Yeah. Nothing uh, to do with with drugs, an excess of of narcotics, or a lack I mean, of performance enhancing drugs. It couldn't have helped, could it? So. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Anyway, uh, okay. November is found guilty of sporting fraud over the uh, Turin hospital incident. Uh, he goes to a, a police station to sign some papers for it. Next slide, please. And then drives his car the wrong way up a wrong way street and totals eight other cars on his way back. I was not expecting to see an uh, a Mercedes <laughs> on, on two, possibly three wheels. Yeah. In an incredibly uh, narrow street. Wrong way down a wrong, one-way street, smashes up eight cars. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty pretty cool. Oh, yeah, I actually see that the, the, it's, it's, it's resting up against another car. I thought it was on a wall. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's he's convicted on a, a new law. He's given a six-month suspended prison sentence and a six thousand euro fine. Now, being a a convicted criminal, obviously ain't going to do much for his uh, fragile mental state and paranoia. So uh, he goes to a press conference at the start of uh, two thousand and one to launch the team and claims once again he's been singled out. He has a clear conscience, and there's uh, all the other shit you're supposed to say. Uh, okay. How are his sponsorships looking at the minute? Pretty good. All great. Okay. As far as they're concerned, he's uh, he's won two stages at the Tour de France that summer. He's still the most popular athlete in Italy. He's got some mountain legal trouble, but nothing to worry about at this moment in time. Oh, okay. So there's a journalist who's present at this press conference who went to school with Pantani. And he says, like, uh, this persecution hypothesis is answered by the numbers that show soaring red blood cell counts on a number of occasions. And then we need to clarify what Pantani means by a clear conscience. Can your conscience be clearer if you've doped? Uh, as for what the verdict means, sorry, as the Foley verdict maintains the verdict in the uh, court, simply because everyone else was doing it, obviously it's infuriating to be one of the few in the firing line, especially when it's absolutely plain that Pantani was not the exception in a sport in which many teams were put together on the basis of blood values alone. <laughs> so people are starting to put this together, right? And as I say, this is like a new a new era of cycling coverage where all we talk about is doping and not racing. Uh, in April of 2001, uh, the UCI, the Kings of Cycling, uh, combine the uh, 50% uh, red blood cell count test with a urine test. So if you if you flip the 50% limit, you're forced to do a, a urine test for EPO, which rather begs the question, why not just use the fucking test? Yeah. Yeah, uh, because the UCI have no interest in catching cheats at all. They don't care. Uh, why would you want to catch people who are winning races? It's it's not great for business. Uh, yeah. He spends most of the early season abandoning races. Uh, he tries to get an invitation to the Tour de France, and the guy who runs the Tour de France asks a rhetorical question to the press. Malco Pantani, is he still riding? It's, uh, yeah, this is like all just almost designed to uh, to fuck over his, uh, his mental state, eh? Mm-hmm. He's becoming quite a kind of toxic personality within the... Uh, yeah, within the, and uh, as I remember it from this point, it was just like, if you ever read his name, it was just like, didn't finish a race. That was all you read about. Uh, his manager sees his exclusion from the Tour de France as a catastrophe. And she says, cycling was the only therapy that could keep him away from drugs. That's not sustainable, is it? <laughs> well, keep away from one 
one kind one of drug. drug. Yeah, one drug. several dozen others. But you've got a staff of 30 people who are entirely dependent on one guy's athletic performance who has serious psychological problems and a drug addiction, and you just keep putting them back on a bike. What could go wrong? What, what could, could go, wrong? go wrong? Yeah. So on the 27th of May, stage eight of the Giro d'Italia pulls into San Remo on the uh, the Adriatic coast. And the uh, the police raid every single team hotel. Uh, this is this is like one of the uh, the riders' dads has his camper van outside the hotel, and it takes the the, the police three pages of A four to type out everything they found in that van. <laughs> uh, some riders uh-huh. some riders decide it's easier to jump out the window themselves than to throw the drugs out the window. <laughs> this sport is an absolute shit show it's amazing isn't it so uh, yeah uh, Marco Pantani and Mario Cipollini who I cannot state enough we're going to get to at some point in this series they try to okay. organise a rider's strike the next morning right to try to stop the Giro d'Italia but the organisers <laughs> just like you're invading my privacy or something right so yeah. The organisers, they get to Cipollini the night before because he's a bad scab, right? Mm. So, so Marco's trying to lead a strike on his own the next morning with about four other guys and looks incredibly stupid. Uh, they find a syringe with uh, insulin, traces of insulin in it, which is also banned in the room that was assigned to him, and he's going to get charged for that later on as well. Uh the only good news for him in 2001 is that the conviction in Turin is overturned because literally only because it wasn't a crime in 1995 to dope in sport. Well, I mean... Vindication! Yeah, I mean, he's, he's got a point, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's not, like he, it's not like he reformed his character once it was. Uh, no, no. Yeah, so... <laughs> The 2002, right, the, the sponsorship contract with Mechatoni Uno is up and they're like, well, you know, we still love Marco and he's still part of the family, but we can't just keep hosing money at this shit show. This is insane. Even so mess. there's a, a vastly reduced budget for the team. They get rid of the experienced team manager and uh, Marco's personal manager takes over as team principal. Uh, oh. So this is a team who all know he has a drug problem, who are all completely dependent on him for their livelihood. Uh, mm-hmm. They come up with a, a quote-unquote innovative management structure, which basically makes inexperience a feature and not a bug. It's all the wrong guys. People are inexperienced in their, in their roles. It's all guys who've worked with the Conconi or Ferrari before. The equipment's not great. And to cap it all, Marco started smoking crack. It's like an an exercise in how things can go from bad to worse. It is, Uh, it is. So (laughs) his personal manager decides... His personal manager, Ronchi, moves him into this uh, out-of-season holiday apartment somewhere in the middle of fucking nowhere. And obviously the isolation just makes him want to smoke more crack. But... Meantime, his house gets raided uh, by the police, with the house that he shares with his parents and Christina uh, about the syringe they found in uh, San Remo. Uh, 
late in January, he's supposed to go to the Italian uh, Cycling Federation to do a physical test for his racing license. But he can't because he's been up for four days smoking crack. Standard. Standard. <laughs> Standard stuff for a professional athlete, right? Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. At this point, he feels he has to come clean to Ronchi, his manager. He says, like, I've got to stop cycling. I can't do this anymore. Uh, and I'm on crack, right? Uh, yeah. So she goes to tell the sponsors, right? Because they're going to need to have him some time away from, uh, from, from cycling. And the sponsor's only question is, can he ride the Giro? <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, um, you know, like, the answer, of course, next slide, please, is yes. Yes, he could ride the Shiro. They just put him on a bike. Uh, it's the... What, immorality? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sickening. It's like really like... It's, it's the conflict of interest there between like you're trying to do what's right for this guy, but everyone's living is dependent on him. Yeah? So uh, it, it, everyone's living is dependent on him, so it's, it's dependent on him, so it's... Um, so that justifies acting with absolutely no compassion towards him. Yeah, exactly. Or you believe that you're doing him a favour by putting him back on a bike every year. Yeah. You tell yourself you're doing him a favour by putting, yeah. him, putting him on the back on a bike every yeah. year. Whether exactly, you yeah. Or, not, or you spin that shit so often that you start to believe it. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. Mm. So anyway, they find this, this uh, psychologist who specializes in drug addiction, who actually works in the public health authority in Italy and is like the leading guy for uh, drug dependency issues in Italy, Dr. Mario Pisacroia. Uh, and they kind of do him in uh, secret consultations with him. And he diagnoses Marco as having a nonspecific personality disorder, you don't say, with uh, narcissistic, mm. antisocial and obsessive elements, you don't say. Frequent use of denial and manipulation, once again, you don't say. Uh, so he tries to set up like a surveillance network within the team, which is basically like, you know, you keep him away from the people he's not supposed to be going to. But this guy is like 20 million dollars in the 20 million euros in the bank. Like you can go to any of these people and say, hey, just go down the street, collect this package for me. And here's a Rolex. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost impossible. In one session, Pisa yeah. Croyat tells him, if you take a cane, You'll never again be a champion. And Marco asks, but when I'm not riding, can I still do coke? It's <laughs> it's a horrible situation. It's really not nice. I know this is. Uh, this, uh, I don't know why I laugh. Well, I do know why I laugh. Yeah, because it's it's, it's laugh ridiculous. it's laugh or cry at this point, isn't it? So it's it's, it's 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 such a ridiculous situation. For, uh, you're right; it is just laugh or cry. Yeah, poor so, man. Yeah, in April he gets brought in for questioning regarding that insulin syringe in San Remo. Again, deny, deny, deny. My name might have been on the room list, but I didn't sleep in that room. We do it for privacy. La 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 la. Uh, the team alleged that the syringe belonged to a team worker who has diabetes, and obviously he takes insulin for his diabetes. Uh, this is rather blown out the water when the team worker tells the investigation that he takes oral medication. <laughs> the Italian Olympic Authority recommends a four-year ban. He, uh, yeah. Just fill him in before. Let him know. Uh, Listen, you're going to you're gonna have to bullshit for us. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the other thing here is is like I will no no no. I'm gonna I'm gonna save that bit for for later on. But so he does ride the Giro, but okay. he abandons he abandons whilst he's running seventy fifth. Right. The same day he gets charged again for uh, the nineteen ninety nine blood test at the Giro d'Italia. Uh, that week at the Giro as well, the team doctor is caught with a shitload of morphine that he stole from a dead patient. It's, uh, it's, it's insane. I mean, like, this reason is insane. It's like, the, it's, it's so, considering it's, you know, it's a professional sport and it's a very high profile sport and they're essentially, you know, cheating, they're cheating and it's like a network, a network of drugs and a network of, um, of doctors and suppliers, I imagine the lack of organisation and the lack of structure to it, to the season itself, considering it's such an integral part of the sport at this this moment in time, there is no structure to the season. It just seems like now, everybody has gone completely rogue. I'll tell you, who did bring yeah, you know, this is this is like the dying throes of an era of amateurish cheating because fucking Lance Armstrong perfected that oh, yeah. shit. Oh, <laughs> you know the Bruce Lee of cheating. Yeah, you know <laughs> he was amazing, especially yeah. for like the, you know for he was so much better at the Amerta side of things than the Italians. It's incredible. So and not only did he do that, but also on top of it, he also kind of made the world kind of fall in love with him. And and kind of while he's doing this, with on one hand, cancer on Jesus, hand, yeah. Yeah, I just And on the other hand, the people wearing like yellow bracelets and talking about what an inspiration he is. Yeah. Just, it's incredible. It's Lance incredible. Armstrong's on the list for a future episode as well. Oh, what but, he pulled uh, off. Yeah. Anyway, so Pisa Croyer, who's uh, uh, Marco's personal psychologist, says My advice was that it was a mistake to insist on keeping Marco on a bike. Yeah. The measures taken to give him even the smallest competitive chance were so complex, he was almost impossible to manage. The team was tightly structured around him, yet he constantly reached outside. He maintained his own private cocaine suppliers and probably his own suppliers of doping products. They may have even been the same people, very likely involved in organized crime. You couldn't take his eyes off him for a moment. At the same time, Marco was no longer sure he wanted to continue as a cyclist. If you remove the question of riding, and Marco was extremely wealthy, he didn't need to ride, you were left with just a cocaine problem. And that alone might have been manageable. Uh, so, in June of that year, after the Giro, he gets an eight-month ban for the syringe. So he's gonna—he can't ride again until 2003 anyway. Uh, okay. So he can't take the shame of this. He's too proud to ask for help from anybody. So all he does is he locks himself behind the security door in his house and takes a fuck ton of cocaine. Uh, Ronchi responds by sacking uh, Pesacroya as. Uh, as Marco's personal psychiatrist. My notes for the rest of 2002 read simply, more car crashes, more coke. I mean, bang on brand, you know. What yeah. is just, that was obviously what he was going to do. Yeah. He's, he said, so 2003, he's, he said basically, I've retired from cycling. I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, the team's going to stop, but, you know, more more issues are like once people people keep finding him in the throes of like cocaine psychosis, like psychotic hallucinations, delusional ramblings, writing on bed sheets over uh, all over the place. Uh, he goes to uh, he goes to Cuba. Now this is a fucking wild tale, right? He goes to Cuba 
for a holiday with a, a local restaurateur just to get him away from all the people who were surrounding him, right? So there's a load of uh, Cuban girls. There's some extremely lurid and unverifiable claims of a dead prostitute from an ecstasy overdose that I keep reading about, but nobody's uh, nobody's proven. Uh, he destroys his passport, so he needs to like, get a temporary document from the embassy to get home. Uh, he has plastic surgery in Cuba to pin his ears back, which just makes him look like a kind of parody of himself. Uh, the weirdest part of this is he, Diego Maradona is at the time in a, uh, a treatment facility in Cuba, right? And he manages to get Maradona to come to the gate to talk to him by phoning up an ex-teammate of Maradona. Maradona doesn't have a fucking clue who this guy is. Yeah. I'm... <laughs> oh, this is much. Yeah, it's just like two two little cocaine-addled weirdos like game-recognized game for a brief five-minute chat. And uh, so on top of this, right, they're still trying to make him race. (laughs) They're still trying to get him back on a bike. It's it's incredible, yeah. It's it's really remarkable. Uh, There's a long quote here from his manager, which I'm not going to read, but it's like, he think, she believes that he's the innocent victim who's trying to save cycling. Marco wants to say to everybody, right, guys, stop, because if we carry on like this, we're going to kill the sport. But he was the only one standing up to the system. Uh, he was a victim of the system. No, I, okay. There's, a, there's an issue here, and this is what I wanted to talk about before, of a system fucking over an individual and refusing to address the system. Right? Mm-hmm. This yes. is an issue, like, all throughout sport is we, we, we like good guys and bad guys. It's we like point the finger at some people and celebrate other people like uh, Armstrong as well. Uh, yeah. But that doesn't mean that you weren't guilty of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you didn't cheat and it doesn't mean you haven't robbed results from other people who maybe were trying to do things the right way. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you know, you don't deserve to end up like Pantani did, like paranoid and absolutely fucked up on on all sorts of stuff and psychologically destroyed as a result of bad choices you made in your job. But at the same time, this is a system that's going after one guy to try and show that they have a handle on a problem that they don't have a handle on. Yeah, and also going after one guy and painting them as the ultimate villain. Um, It deflects from people looking at the system itself. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, exactly. System, if, you, if you create a villain, then if the system creates a villain, then the, the, the system just automatically take the stance of the hero. Yeah, precisely. And this is uh, this is like exactly what we learn. Well, the lesson we should take from the uh, the ballad of Marco Pantani is you need yeah. to look at a system, and however painful it might be for a year or two, it's a system that needs to be addressed and not just kicking individuals. Anyway, 2004, he moves in with his manager for a brief period, storms out after refusing to go to a treatment facility and arguing with his parents who come to like take him to the treatment facility, runs away to Rimini, which is about 15 kilometers away from his house. Uh, You can read all the lurid details of his, his death, but uh, what does, what does that serve us going into here? Uh, He dies Mm -hmm. on the 14th of January, 2004. And immediately becomes a hero of cycling. They have a, a, a <laughs> they have a prize named for him at the Giro d'Italia. If you go to the next slide, 
sorry, the next slide is actually the ho the, the awful hotel where he died uh, in Rimney. But the next slide there is just an enormous monument on the top of one of the, the, iconic, uh, the iconic pose. Yeah, but that's that's six meters tall. That thing. Oh, there's a person next to it. He yeah, really yeah is for, for scale, but it's also really gaudy and tacky, isn't it? And you've got the, the last slide is this is on the Mortirolo, the one on the left, which is like him on a bike looking over his shoulder. And on the right is the one in uh, his hometown in Chesnatico. So, oh, that's that's nice. That's nice and tasteful, I think. Well, the, the spinnergy wheels are cool as well. The uh, the old school yeah. spinnergy oh. wheels, I like those. Uh, that was the first thing I noticed, actually. Yeah. Because you're you're an officiando of spinnergy wheels now, but yeah, yeah. <coughs> Again, so just to sum up, what did we learn, Paul? What did we learn? So I mean, we looked at we looked at someone who, um, like we said, he um, he made some bad choices and suffered greatly by making bad choices. As a result of these choices, um, was painted as, was painted as a villain. By yeah. a system which then then, then abandoned him, like yeah. abandoned him, um, but you know took on the role of the hero in all of this, and then so he, he let himself down, but he was fundamentally let down by a system, by a system that should have looked out for him, that should have been there, and should have been had an infrastructure in place in which, well, one, Dopen was. Yeah, well, well was you don't have to. You don't have to make a choice. You don't have to make a choice between your career. And experimental chemistry. Yeah, basically yeah. a system a system which allowed these allowed these young men to become yeah. lab rats. And the only the yeah. only reason he was singled out as well is you know part of his paranoid conspiracy about this was he was singled out because he was winning too much. But I mean that's partly true. He was singled out because he was winning, so you got tested more. You were more likely to get caught. He, he also he also by virtue of you know. Um, the sort of the statements that he'd make in the you know in his the, the gold ear studs and the, oh, the golden sorry the the diamond nose studs yeah some and, people you know, some people can't wait to see axe. someone like that fall down yeah yeah of course you set yourself up you set yourself up by that yeah. in that way um, obviously again his use of drugs probably kind of made him act in a kind of much more unpredictable extrovert and self indulgent way and. People come after people come after characters like that. Tall poppy you know. syndrome, yeah. Tall poppy syndrome. I've never heard that before, but that's amazing. Really? Okay. No, no. It's uh, a great. One. You know, the only the only thing the other thing I would say is that he was an inspiration to a lot of people. He's a lot of people's favorite rider still. You know, it's, yeah, it, I mean, to watch him to watch him was incredible. Like yeah, almost literally the literal definition of incredible. Uh, you know, he's up against these. He's up against these people who you know are uh, uh, just giants by yeah. comparison. And he looks like a little a little frail guy, you know? A little sprightly fella. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's the uh, that's the ballad of Marco Pantani. And that's our first episode of Pirates, Princes and Peaches. Now, let's decide what the next episode's going to be, Paul. Give me a number between one and a hundred. Ooh, okay. Um... Let me see. I'm going to go with my wife and my dad's birthdays. In fact, no, no, I'm not. Today is my brother's birthday, and it's the 20th. Which one? I'm going to go. Which one? Kevin. Kevin. Kevin's birthday. Happy birthday, Kevin. Yeah, he is a. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'll go with 28, please. 28. 
Nah, you can't have 28 because that's uh, another cyclist. So we're not going to do two back-to-back cycling episodes. What's your... Okay, sorry, I'll, sorry, Kev. What's I'll your second choice? Kevin's age. Yeah. 49. 49. Is a guy I know almost nothing about, but uh, I remember reading a lot about him in tabloid newspapers, Mr. Danny Cipriani. Rugby Union oh. is Danny Cipriani. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Excellent. So, till the next time. Have a good one, Paul. And you have a good one too, mate. All right. Speak to you soon. Speak soon. Bye Bye now.